Welcome to episode 86, Getting Through the COVID-19 Directives, Supporting Connection and Emotional Health, featuring Dr. Judy Ho by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today we are joined by Dr. Judy Ho, and she's going to be spending some time talking with us about the social impact of these directives related to the pandemic when we are limiting social contact and many of us feel isolated. Dr. Judy is a triple board certified and licensed clinical and forensic neuropsychologist. She is also a tenured associate professor at Pepperdine University and a published author. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Judy. Oh, thank you, Elizabeth. It's always great to see you. Um, so why don't we start by you kind of telling us a bit about your background and then also what this topic means to you. I mean, you, like all of us, are affected by what's happening um, and we're all kind of holed up in our, our homes. So I've been working in the mental health field, including my training years for about 18, 19 years. And this is something that I've never seen before. You know, this current pandemic that we're in and how it's impacting our ability to care for others and care for ourselves. My own experience, I uh, I love research. I love evidence-based work. And that is the ground that I lay for all of my patients, you know, really learning techniques that they can take with them and techniques that that they can use in their lives, tools that they can use that are something that stems from research. And I think right now, more than ever, clinicians maybe need a little bit more of a hand in terms of how to work with our clients in this current climate, but also how to do good self-care as we're many of us transitioning to a mostly or completely telehealth-based practice. And then we, of course, have our home duties. You know, if you have kids, then all of a sudden you're a homeschool teacher sharing the space with your family. And it's wonderful to be with your family, but also where's the demarcation? Where are the boundaries that you need between work and play in your own zone and the family zone? And so those are some of the things that I want to talk about today. Let's jump right into what's happening in uh, both our offices, you know, in our practices and what's happening across communities. We're seeing a major increase in anxiety. People are having trouble sleeping, lots of ruminating thoughts. Um, what's going on with the pandemic and specifically how is that affecting our experience of anxiety right now, just being an earthling effectively? Well, I think the anxiety is coming from all of the unknowns. And it makes sense why we would have such a struggle with that. Human beings are able to survive as a species because we are good at predicting our environment around us and to a degree controlling our environment around us. That's what ensures survival. And right now, there's so many things up in the air. We don't have any answers. We don't know how things are going to look. And that is bound to trigger our fight or flight responses. And when that happens sporadically and in short increments, it's actually very adaptive. Human beings are great at solving problems that are short term. And then they need to relax. They need to get back into that parasympathetic nervous system. Unfortunately, with the current situation and pandemic, you're constantly in fight or flight. And there is no reset unless you consciously do things to try to reset yourself. And I think that's where the anxiety comes from. The anxiety comes from not being able to predict your future and therefore tying into our fears of not surviving. I think it's kind of important to 
to bring up what you just did, which is kind of the evolutionary origins, you know, what's happening right now, and that this is not the first time that human beings have been through a pandemic, but this is the first time in many generations that we have. And that this is triggering, I think, for so many, an unbelievable amount of uncertainty. We don't know when a lockdown is going to be over. We don't know if there's going to be one wave of this, if there are going to be two waves of this. Um, Tell me more kind of about the evolutionary underpinnings of this and and what it's inspiring more than just anxious ruminations. Well, I think other than the fact that this is a pandemic that actually is costing lives, which of course gets directly to our survival instincts and those evolutionarily uh, based fears. But there is also a deep sense of grief, a grief about not only the people who might be passing away or the people who have passed away from the effects of this pandemic, but also grief about your former life and lifestyle. Grief about perhaps having to leave a sector of work. Many people are being laid off right now, or at least they don't know if they're going to have their jobs back when this is all over. And there's grief about that. Grief about identity and who you are when you're not running around doing a million things at once and most people are confined to their homes. What does that mean about your identity and who you are and 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 what you provide to the world? And also at the same time, when you are living in a multi-generational family, if you have kids or maybe you're living with your parents, um, also holding their fears and having to deal with those fears and, and processing their grief And I certainly see that this has brought up a lot of existential crises in people, um, not only among my clients, but also colleagues, friends, and family members, where they're really contemplating what their life really is about. And has there been meaning to their life? What do they need to change? And doing all of that in the current climate can be really tough because even if you come to these understandings about what you want your life to look like, you may not be able to implement it right now. So for example, you think, wow, I really wish I took more risks in my life. You know, I want to start doing that more. Well, most of us can't go out and take those risks now. You know, most of us have stay-at-home orders. So I think there's a lot of thinking and a lot less doing. And I think that's a struggle for a lot of people. Certainly, we're caught with ourselves in a way that we normally aren't, being in a very busy culture where we value moving very quickly and have these ample to-do lists, which many of us still have, as you said. You know, we many people are still working and, and we have children at home or parents to take care of. And so we still have obligations, but everything is really kind of upside down from what we knew to be true even just a month ago. Um one of the things that really stands out to me in myself and in my clients is just this increase in fears of loneliness, of what it means to be with ourselves, to not be able to give a good friend a hug right now. Um, kind of tell me more about that and, and what we do about it. Well, I think we have to start getting a bit more creative about our social connections. And I've spoken to a number of people about this, and some people will say things to me like, well, I'm an introvert, I'll be fine. And I think that that's a myth that we need to dispel because even introverts do need some level of social connection. It just might look different in volume and type than the types of social connections extroverts would prefer. And when we talk about the definition of extroverts versus introverts, you know, there's all these different types of definitions. But I think the the main definition that I like to use is that extroverts tend to derive their energy from being around people and introverts tend to 
derive their energy from being alone and recharging. But every single human being needs social connection because, again, bringing it back to evolution, it's what we need to survive. Um, human beings are pack species. They are social species. And when we are around other people, interestingly, we manage our cortisol a lot better. We manage our stress a lot better because there's more than one person who might be watching out for you. And this is why when something happens, let's say there's an earthquake or maybe a really bad bout of turbulence when you're on a plane, you look around at everybody else's reactions. It's a very natural thing to do because we're trying to assess based on the other members of our species, how we should be responding. Now, when we are alone, even consciously not realizing this, our cortisol becomes amplified. And it will be increased and amplified until we get into the contact of another human being. And it's an interesting bit of research that I just came to recently that makes a lot of sense because when you're by yourself, you have to have your guard up a bit more because there's nobody else to watch what's going on. And so at this point, every single person does need some level of social connection and everybody's style is different, but I really recommend that we start getting creative. And one of my first recommendations is to have more shared experiences. You know, usually when we see our coworkers or our friends and family members, we're sharing an experience with them. We're having a cup of coffee together, a glass of wine, a meal. And now not only do we not get to see them in person, we don't have those shared experiences as easily either. And so I have been doing Zoom meetings and having coffee with my coworkers. I've been having lunch with my friends from the other side of the country. And so, you know, we'll just bring a plate to our table and we'll enjoy it together. And I think that that has been helpful because it almost makes you feel like you're together a bit more. Um, it doesn't have to be around food. I've also watched a television episode together with somebody while we're on FaceTime. And it's almost like they're sitting next to you and you guys seem to comment on the show at the same time. And so I, I do think that we have to start putting more intention into our social connections. And there's the good and the bad of that. The good is we're more intentional and you're probably going to derive more meaning and get more bang for your buck. But I think obviously the downside is we have to be more intentional. It's, it's a little bit more work um, before you can really connect with somebody in a meaningful way. I know many of us are trying to figure out how to connect. Uh, my community, our neighbors are really close to each other. And even seeing them, you know, when we pull out of the garage to, to go to the grocery store that once every few week trip, there's this invisible boundary that's between us that we need to be observing for our safety and for theirs. But it creates um, it, it creates this layer that we've never experienced before um, to have to keep, keep a boundary like that with the people that we care about so much. Um, I like what you're saying and trying to figure out ways to connect, but also the importance of the intentionality. And I know one thing that I've seen a lot with my clients, and maybe you've seen exactly the same, now being, you know, online doing Zoom meetings, I'm seeing clients in their homes, I'm meeting their cats and their dogs and seeing their sports memorabilia behind them in a way that I haven't in my office. But I also noticed in the few weeks that I've been doing online sessions, especially in the last week, um, my clients looking more and more disheveled. 
And one of my first questions being, are, are you taking a shower? Mm. When did you get out of bed today? Um, so how do we support clients in their own adjustment while we're going through this too? You know, we, we by and large, a lot of clinicians right now are able to have some kind of connection with clients. We're able to keep working in one way or another. So for us, we have this structure, but they may not. It may just be them alone in an apartment with or without even a cat or a fish. Um, so what do we do to help them? keep some kind of structure so that they don't just kind of fall off the back end? Well, it's a very good question. And I think I've seen what you've seen also, and not just with clients, with my friends telling me that, with my friends saying, I'm really embarrassed to admit this, but I actually haven't combed my hair or gotten out of my pajamas in a week. And these are highly functioning individuals who, and then, you know, you just never know what this will do to anybody's mental health, honestly, or just how they decide to conduct themselves because it's, there's just so many unknowns. And this is again, a very unprecedented time. I think the way that we help our clients is first, you've got to be a good role model yourself. Um, you know, Elizabeth, you and I can see each other on video right now. I'm still in my workout clothes because I just finished running, but every single day since this has happened, I have been getting in the shower getting dressed as if I'm going to work, even on weekends. My husband actually makes fun of me. He's like, why are you wearing a suit around the house? But you know, it's a, it's that slight uncomfortability that makes you feel like you're at work, right? And I actually do put on makeup a little bit every day, just, just to kind of feel like I'm going out, even though I'm not, you know, which is sort of silly because a lot of times I go to work without any makeup. But now it's almost like this additional effort of let's pretend we've got somewhere to be. And um, I think we have to educate our clients to do the same. We have to help them to keep to a schedule. And I certainly have had my struggles with this even in the little last two weeks or so that we've been doing this because um, I'll find myself being like a grad student almost, you know, I'll, I'll start working again at like 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. because it's easy. You know, you're already there and you've been home all day. Why not? And you have to draw a boundary. And I think you have to teach your clients to do the same. So make a schedule, try to get up and go to sleep around the same time every day. That's going to help with your sleep hygiene as well. Shower, get dressed as if you were going out and make areas in your home for work versus play. You know, um, if your clients have work they need to do, um, they should be working at a table or in a room and then they could get off work the way that you do when you're outside the home so that you can leave that desk or leave that area. And then you go spend time in the rest of the areas of your home where that's the relaxation. And so I think it's important to do that because I think a lot of that, um, decompensation happens when there aren't any boundaries and there aren't any schedules. And that I think is a tip that goes for our clients and for ourselves, you know, to make sure that we also take good care of ourselves and do the same for, you know, for, for what we need right now so that we can continue to work well and be effective for our patients. I appreciate that you bring up the importance of even having a literal space that's separated. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I know I've seen clients that have been sitting in bed, and part of that is that they may have nowhere else that they can sit, mm -hmm. you know, that that's the only private place that they can be. So it suddenly becomes, I mean, therapy has always been intimate. It suddenly takes on a whole new kind of intimacy. Yeah. But um, I, I know I've talked with clients, it's like if they have a desk in the corner or wherever it is that they're mm -hmm. working, you know, I asked one of them, do you have a room divider? And mm -hmm. that person's like, oh, yes, I do. 
And I was like, okay, can we do that? Can you try and make this a space yeah. and try to separate out, you know, that that a bed ideally should just be for sleep and sex. And mm-hmm. it, the most that we can keep it that way, the better off our sleep schedule is going to be and, and try to have that separation. One of the things that I noticed for myself, you know, in asking myself, like basically what separates my work from home, and I realized something for me is a watch. If I'm wearing a watch, that's my way of saying that I'm working. And now in the last few weeks, it's taken on a new meaning to put my watch on um, because there's a significance of taking it on and off, even if I'm still at home, because it signifies, okay, now I'm done with work. And I put it mm. in, put it in its little cup. And I think it's important for us not only to do it for ourselves, but to also help our clients in finding ways to create a boundary between work and home because it could so easily blur right now. Um, mm. I I want to hear more from you about kind of this concept of loneliness and the importance of social connection as human beings. Yeah. You know, I think this loneliness epidemic that people talk about us having. It's not exactly the way that I think it has been described in media. I think when it first came out and they're saying, oh my gosh, you know, being lonely is like smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Everybody just held on to that tagline and, and ran with it. And and while I'm so happy that mainstream media has taken more of an interest in psychological phenomena, sometimes I think despite their best efforts, they misquote what the research actually says. And Loneliness has a lot of different definitions, but what we find is the operational definition that causes people mental and physical strife is the perception of being alone, the perception of being isolated. It's very different from somebody who chooses to live alone and they feel great. You know, they hang out with their family once every few days and they go to the market and they talk to their neighbors and they feel very happy about their social connection. But conversely, someone could be living with eight people and seeing hundreds of people a day and they can have a profound sense of being alone. And so I think that speaks to how all of us are adjusting to this new normal right now. Some people may actually not seem like somebody who you as a clinician might be worried about because you think, oh, well, this person's living with their family. They seem happy with their family for the most part. They'll probably be fine. But actually, I don't know if that's true. You know, I think some of them might actually be suffering from a profound sense of loneliness because they're more hypervigilant to that. And maybe it's just their state of mind or how they're evaluating where they are in this pandemic. And so I think it's important to kind of clue into your clients, but also for yourself, like what is a good and accurate self-assessment about my own perception of loneliness? And do I feel disconnected right now? And if you do, then you have to try your best to consciously put in more work in reducing that sense of loneliness. But if you don't, um, then that's great. I think I feel like sometimes people have this little uh, guilt about that too. Um, I have a couple of clients who say, you know, I know everybody's stressed out about not connecting, et cetera, et cetera. And they're like, I feel great. <laughs> and I'm like, and that's okay. And I want to validate that as well. Cause some people really, they, in this current time, they're not suffering from that quite as much. But, you know, one of the things that I have found to be immensely helpful and that one I've taught my clients is just get, get into the habit of reaching out to one or two people a day. 
And that not only helps the person because you may be checking in on somebody who has been really hopeless and not feeling good. And this way you get to connect with them and give them something really positive. But also you get something out of it for yourself, you know, whether or not you were feeling lonely before, we all know that when we focus on others and give to others that it boosts our own mood. And so there's a, you know, selfish benefit that you also get from doing this, but, but you could really help someone else who might be in a completely different perception of their own loneliness and isolation. I think that's a good point, kind of getting back to the social fabric of what it means to be human. And even if we're reaching out to somebody and we don't need it as much, that that may be really significant for somebody on the other end of the line. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I've heard a lot from clients recently, of course, my sessions have been dominated with talks about this. You know, what is it doing to my finances? What is it doing to my kids? What about my job? What does this mean for my family members? What if I get it? And we are pretty inundated with these certain words, you know, with COVID-19, pandemic, coronavirus, uh, fatality rate, you know, it's just like we can rattle off those figures in our sleep and it's it's so um, all-consuming. Yeah. One of the questions that I've been getting from clients is like, you know, I, I don't want to talk about it anymore, but I don't know how to talk with my family about that. You know, if they mm -hmm. if they call a friend or a family member or they're with a friend or a family member, that some of us are in different stages with this. Mm -hmm. How do you recommend that people are talking to loved ones about kind of putting the kibosh on the constant 24-hour um, news cycle about this pandemic? Well, there's a couple of recommendations. And I think the first one is definitely use whatever opportunity you can to talk to your family, friends, and your kids about news literacy skills. You know, a lot of what is drawing people into this well of fear is not really being able to separate fact from fiction. And so they're in this 24-hour news cycle and they're reading some really scary headlines. And some of those are probably not even factual. And so teaching good news literacy, where should you be getting this information? Um, social media, not so reliable, even though that's obviously where most people are getting it. And there was a recent study that was just done about how people are getting their news in this pandemic. And basically people who generally rely on social media are much more scared and fearful than people who are going to credible news sources. So I think it's a good chance to teach news literacy, but it's also a good chance to talk about boundaries, especially with your kids and setting a boundary for yourself and your own family. So I would suggest that again, you want to be informed, but spend no more than two hours consuming the news a day if you're an adult and one hour or less for children. And after you've spent that time consuming the news, ask yourself, what is one actionable step I can do to take care of myself today? based on what I just learned. And then after that, you have to walk away because what happens is people consume the news and then instead of actually problem solving and doing something concrete about it, it just boils over in their mind. They're talking to other people. Then there's this whole media contagion and they're scaring each other. And so once you've taken the time to consume the news in that time frame that you've set for yourself, and I suggest setting an alarm because otherwise the news just rolls into the other piece of the news and the next show rolls into the next segment and you can just kind of get into this crazy binge cycle with that. And so once you step away from it and have done the actionable step, I think that's when you have to decide how you'll set those boundaries with people who want to talk about it all the time. And I think it's a little bit like politics. I have given this technique um, and taught this technique to my clients to a good uh, level of success where there's going to be politic-free zones or politic-free times. Like at the dinner table, no talk of politics. Um, if somebody's coming to your house and having dinner with you, that's the rule that they have to respect. Um, 
same thing with self-free uh, zones, you know, like living room is no cell phones, you know, we're just in here to spend time as a family. And then when you're exiting the living room, you can pick up your phone in the basket that I left by the door. In some ways, we almost have to do that with the coronavirus information. It's like, okay, you know what? How about we don't talk about it at dinner today? Let's let's just try that. You know, we can always talk about it later or we can even watch the news together as a family for an hour after dinner. But let's talk about some other things at dinner. And I think it's important for you to draw those boundaries for yourself and also be reassuring to people who really want to talk about it, letting them know we will have a time frame to talk about it. But I would like today's dinner to not be focused on that. Again, I'm hearing the importance of boundaries and to piggyback on what you were just saying about the social media consumption. When I had interviewed Dr. Fishhoff a couple of weeks ago, um, he had found the same about other pandemics that basically the more news people were consuming, the more they were disturbed and anxious because they were just inundated with all of this data and not really knowing how to separate out what's really relevant to them and alters their flow of life and what they need to know and what's just kind of floating around in the ether and basically increasing our anxiety. Yeah. And I think it's so hard right now because we know this theme, I guess, you know, as we've been talking more and more has been about boundaries. It's all been about boundaries. And it's because we have to set those boundaries for ourselves. We can't rely on the external world or other external cues to set it for us. You have to set your own cues. So I really love your tip about setting your watch down when you're done with work. And these are things that you have to sort of decide for yourself. Where are my boundaries? What kind of things do I need to demarcate certain parts of my life? And I think it's the same even with your media consumption, that maybe some of the boundaries even has to do with scheduling when you consume that news. A lot of people want to consume it right before they go to bed, and then they're already having trouble sleeping. So those two things definitely don't go together. And I try to keep my news uh, limited to the daytime. I kind of think about it as a horror movie. (laughs) I don't want to watch a horror movie right before I go to sleep because then I'm going to dream about it. So I really do try to keep my news consumption to before dinner, basically, as my rule for myself. And that's helped me. You know, I think I've also done, especially in the beginning of this pandemic, the reading the news right before bed. (laughs) And uh, that definitely disturbs my sleep a bit more, you know, because you're literally just thinking about everything that you just read and getting anxious and upset or worried about it. Um, Yes, I think boundaries, boundaries, boundaries is kind of the takeaway. One of the difficulties we have as behavioral health professionals, so right now we're thinking of medical professionals as being on the front lines. You know, they're the ones that are at risk. They're the ones that are delivering care, doctors, nurses, thank goodness for what they're doing, the administrators. And then we have what I've been thinking of, like kind of the second and third lines. So we have the people who are working in food production and service. We have um, kind of different industries that keep, keep the world spinning effectively, keep the country afloat. And then we have the behavioral health crew. And we are also kind of part of those front lines, not at the very front, but we're part of it. And so here we are as behavioral health professionals saying, okay, everybody needs to have boundaries about their consumption of this. But I know that pretty much every session I've had, every progress note I've written has been based on assisted client and developing coping skills relating to anxiety caused by the pandemic, you know, problem solved with client actionable steps they can take to help them feel more efficacious. Like it's it's been what's dominated our sessions. When we're as professionals right in the midst of all of this. And so news or not, even if we weren't watching news, we're getting it from our clients. How do we basically emotionally protect ourselves from getting too, um, too overwhelmed by the, the profound nature of what we're talking about in session? Well, you know, I think it's interesting, as you mentioned, sort of the the front lines and like the primary, secondary, tertiary groups. And interestingly, in my family, we have one of each 
Uh, my husband is an anesthesiologist, so he is literally on the front lines of the hospital every day. And there is a growing fear among all of the medical professionals on in the hospital because they're low on supplies, low on masks. Um, they're dealing with their own anxieties and their fear of contracting something and bringing it back to their family, but also needing to be there to take care of their patients. And then, of course, me as a psychologist being in behavioral health, and then my brother-in-law is a delivery man for FedEx. So he's got to still work every day and he's got to be out there. And, and yet there's this uh, cohort effect too, right? Because you're talking about it with your coworkers and sometimes that fear gets amplified, but sometimes it also makes you feel good um, that you have people who understand where you're coming from. And so right now, as we're talking to our clients about just the profoundness of everything that's going on, a lot of them, they may also be in one of those necessary positions. I mean, I really feel, as you mentioned, for the restaurant workers who are still working and the grocery workers who are still working so that we can have our market supplies. Um, but also there's so many people who literally don't know what's going to happen to their lives. Their jobs are effectively wiped out. And for the foreseeable future, people who are in any kind of service industry, like hairstylists, massages, um, you know, working in nail salons, I mean, all of these things are not deemed essential services and they don't have jobs anymore. And so I think it's it's an interesting time when we talk about things like thought distortions, right? Because as a CBT therapist, it's like, oh, well, that thought is distorted because it's too black and white or it's a cat uh, catastrophic thinking. And in some ways, I don't know if all of my clients are thinking things that are so out of touch with reality right now. You know, I think some of their fears are very well founded. And, and I think even if you can't solve the problem for them, and I know that we want to as clinicians, we want to give them everything that we can um, and we want to help them improve their lives in maybe sometimes more concrete ways. I think right now, because it is such a profound global issue that nobody has answers to, so much of what we're giving our patients is just understanding and empathy and compassion and a validation of, no, you're not crazy to have these fears. You're not crazy to think I might never get my job back. That's a real fear. I'm not sure what's going to happen to your sector and when it's going to come back because none of us know that. Um, I think that that is, that is probably a good first step, even if it's an unsatisfactory or maybe a, a an unfulfilling first step, like you want to be able to do more, but we have to kind of move with the times. And I also think that it's interesting because this is a really good opportunity to really hone in on your mindfulness practice, like really be in the present moment, right? Because you really can't go too much farther than that. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like a week or a month from now. So it's almost a great time to work on that mindfulness practice as hard as it is, because we literally have a continuous real life situation that requires you to practice mindfulness over and over again to sort of stay sane. Um, again, I feel like we're we're going to go right back to, I think, the undercurrent of all this, which is boundaries. Uh, but let's talk about kind of compassion fatigue and how to work through that as a clinician, um, because certainly these these days, these sessions are really heavy. I know for me, there was one day this week that I came home and, and just felt like um, deflated, uh, you know, just the gravity of what was happening. Um, what are the remedies that we as clinicians can employ to help work through that? 
You know, it's really interesting, but I was working um, with the population that had just been through Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. Um, this is back 13 years ago. Were you there? I was there too. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And and I think um, when I was there, I was still there as an outsider, meaning I was coming in, I was coming in to work with them. That wasn't really my community that I grew up in. But then I met so many clinicians, we're training clinicians on trauma-focused CBT. And these clinicians had been through the same trauma as their patients, and yet they were trying to minister to their patients, right? And I think that's kind of the same analogy as what we're talking about now, but on a global scale. So, you know, we're all going through it together, but we still have to take the lead in terms of taking care of them, which is why the risk for compassion fatigue goes up so much more. And I think that's why it's such a good question, because I I, I would say that I would venture to say every single one of my clinician friends, even though it's only been a couple of weeks, has already felt the brunt of that compassion fatigue, at least for a couple of days. And I think that's because of the fact that we're also mostly working from home. So then it's like, you can't ever get away from it. And and I think it's, it's almost like the way that we communicate has changed too. I, I do find that people kind of expect me to pick up my phone all the time now, um, be around to respond more because they know that I'm mostly working from home. So there's also even just the expectation that it creates that, oh, everyone's working from home. So what do you mean you can't also meet on a Sunday at 1 p.m. over Zoom, right? It's easy just to ask those things of people. Um, so, you know, I, I, you know, we've already kind of, uh, you know, uh, really drove the point home about boundaries. But I would say that something that's additional that isn't really necessarily about boundaries, but more just about other forms of self-care is actually making sure that you as a clinician really have something that you're still looking forward to every day. Even if it's just for an hour, something that you really get to look forward to. What are you excited about? You know, when we had more physical freedom, you know, people would say things like, well, but today's going to be great because, you know, I'm going to happy hour with my friends after work and catch up with everybody or, oh, well, today's my golf day. I get to go play golf today. Um, what are we looking forward to now that most of us are just hanging out at home? You know, what is the thing that you can create for yourself that you can look forward to that you can be excited about that is almost like a reward for you um, for a job well done for the day? You know, um, something that you're working for other than just obviously you wanting to be a good clinician and helping people. But is there something else that you truly look forward to that has nothing to do with industrialness and work and responsibility. <laughs> because sometimes people will say, well, I really look forward to cooking because I like cooking. I'm like, yeah, but that's also a responsibility. Is there something that's just pure joy for you that you can create for yourself that doesn't have to do with, oh, but I've got to feed a bunch of people and I hope everybody likes what I make today because I'm running out of vegetables and this is what we have. <laughs> um, you know, something that really doesn't have to do with a sense of responsibility or taking care of anyone else but you. I think we have to find that for ourselves within our own home. And so I actually was just digging around in my, um, in my uh, storage to, and, and uncovered all these old board games that I want to play. Um, I found a really old version of Operation, which was one of my favorite games growing up. And I guess I had it in my office for my patients a long time ago. And I just never brought it back to my new office. But I'm like, I'm going to play Operation today. Why not? You know, um, so I, I think we got to find those new moments for ourselves um, and understand that even though the physical boundary is there, that obviously we have imaginations, we have ways in which we can still make things fun, you know, no matter how big or how small your home is.
I think certainly this has brought to light just how much also I know from at least for myself, we've gotten away from that, you know, mm-hmm. of of having downtime and yeah. using our imaginations. Um, and I want to jump back to a point you made earlier, which I think was really important. Um, you know, here we are talking about these actionable steps that we can take to take care of ourselves, to support our clients with boundaries. But fundamentally underneath this is really grief mm-hmm. and that we're seeing people react to that grief in lots of different ways. You know, we see the people that are denying that it's that big of a deal, mm-hmm. you know, and so they're they're in a stage of grief right there. We have other people saying, well, if I do this, but don't do that, then it'll be okay. Okay, now we're bargaining, you know, so we have people going through these different stages of grief. And um, I can hear as you're talking about it also the value in just being there for that with clients and making sure to balance like yes let's talk about these you know the the infamous coping skills that clinicians are so good at helping clients come up with but also being there with them in that grief um we've talked about loneliness so how do we as clinicians connect with clients in their grief when we're doing it through a computer or over the phone like how do we even how do we do this because we're talking about just profoundly dark topics, you know, like our, yeah. our deepest fears are being pulled up by all of this, like you said, you know, what is this this whole existential crisis? So what are your pieces of advice? I know you've done research on things like loneliness. How, how do we work within this new framework? Well, I think first, you know, to your point of grief, um, yeah, we're in different uh processing of grief almost every day, because then you come up with a new piece of information from the news, and then you have to process that. And there's a grief about that. And instead of the stages, I really see grief as moving much more fluidly and dynamically. It's almost like a circle of grief. Like one day you're, you think you've accepted it. And then the next day you're angry again. (laughs) And then the day after that you're bargaining, and then you get a new piece of news. And then all of a sudden you're in denial, you know? So it's, it's all over the place. And I think all of it is okay. And even when you're dealing with your patients. I think there's got to be a lot of transference and countertransference going on right now, just based on your own perception of the seriousness of this pandemic and how you're acting um, versus how your patients are acting. And and I think you have to manage that and you have to hold that as a clinician and, and try your best to withhold any judgment because there's different reasons for why we're all dealing in the different ways that we do. But right now, as most of us are doing telehealth and we're trying to provide what we can to our clients, still give them that same level of empathy and um, expertise that we do, Um, help them to feel not alone, even though they're in their room and you're in your home. Um, I think we have to watch our nonverbals so much more than when you're in the room, because there's that palpable feeling when you're in the room with someone and you know they're with you. And it's kind of unspoken. I've talked to people a lot about how they feel rapport develops. And sometimes people can be very eloquent in their description of like, this is what it means for me to have rapport with my patients or the patients will say, this is what it means when I know that I found the clinician that I can trust. And they can actually be very elaborate in terms of what they describe. But a lot of other people just say that it's a feeling. It's just a feeling of being comfortable with somebody when you're in the same room with them, that you can just sit in that room and you can say things or not say things and you feel at ease it's very hard to make people feel at ease when you're talking through a computer. First of all, there's a lot of fears about privacy, which are not totally unfounded. Um, And it's really good right now that um, HIPAA has been somewhat relaxed in this emergent state, right? Because everyone's trying to figure things out. And so, you know, when APA 
and the board of psychology that said, you know what, for, during this time frame, I know everyone's figuring it out. So, you know, we're going to relapse the HIPAA regulations to some degree, as you guys are all figuring this out, physicians and mental health providers included. Um, that's helpful. But I think for somebody who really values their privacy, dialing in to see somebody on the computer makes them feel like there's that additional barrier, some other fear that makes them feel like they can't totally be honest. What if they're being recorded, you know, uh, not even by your clinician, but by a third party? You know, what if it's being hacked? What if the stream is being watched? Um, so I think not only are you dealing with some of those things, which I don't have answers for because I'm not a technical person. So I can only say I, I, I'm doing my best with the software I use. But can you guarantee anything? I guess you can't guarantee anything. But I think the more important thing is being able to to have that same feeling of at being at ease and empathy when you're in two separate rooms. And I've noticed that my clients, things that I do when I'm in the room, you know, when I'm thinking, I, I naturally will look to the corner of my eye to think about something before I say it to my client. I have noticed that there's a couple of clients who say, are you paying attention to me? <laughs> because it's the way that I'm thinking. But when it's in the room, it doesn't feel as pronounced. But when you're looking at them on a screen, you notice these very uh, minute uh, micro expressions and then people interpret whatever they feel like they need to interpret based on their state of mind and what they've been through. And so I've had to be a lot more intentional when I'm working with my patients about keeping a certain type of eye contact that isn't shifty, <laughs> um, is much more laser focused, which I think when you're in the room is uncomfortable. But maybe through a computer, it's less so. It makes them feel like you're attending more. Um, making sure that my own office space looks clean and organized so that they can feel at ease about looking into the screen and, and, and having that visual stimulus. Um, still talking with my hands because I do this a lot as a clinician in the room. And again, you know, using your usual mannerisms because then they feel like they know you, like that's you and you feel the same to them. Um, and then just explicitly checking in, how was that for you? You know, did you feel okay about the connection? And then actually holding their fears without becoming defensive, because I have had clients say, well, I really just wish we were in person. I don't know why we can't do that. And, and, and instead of being defensive and saying, well, don't you know how bad this pandemic is and I'm protecting you and myself? Um, just saying, my gosh, I totally understand. Because I think most of us would would admit to the fact that you know, teletherapy doesn't, especially when that's not something that you do regularly, doesn't quite as feel quite as comfortable to you as when you're in person. And so I think we should hear them and, and get on the same page with them and let them know that it's temporary. And that obviously we'll be there for them in person as soon as we can, you know. Um, so I think all of those things are important. But but certainly, just asking them how it is, even if you're somewhat afraid of the answer, um, demonstrating that good communication style, uh, I think is important right now instead of ignore the elephant in the room.
I'm glad you bring up what you did about um, eye contact and looking away. One thing I've experienced, so I I keep a folio with me and I'll you know write down some notes of like important things we talked about or make sure to send them this resource or whatever it is. And so I'm looking down and then it dawned on me that they don't know what I'm looking at. Like the, I could be looking at my phone for goodness sake. And so like, you know, I've, I have held up the folio and being like, just do what I normally do, you know, just yeah, so you know, yeah. this is what I'm doing. And like, so they can see my pen, you know, that it's like, I'm still totally with you and I'm trying to do similar to what I do in the room, but it's different. And um, one of the other things that I've noticed, and I'm curious your thoughts on it, one of the difficulties that I've had is um, also preparing clients for how to improve um, telehealth sessions from their side. So, you know, yes, making sure that if they have them that they're using headphones. But one thing that I've struggled with, and, and maybe our listeners have too, Given that some of our connections are spotty, so sometimes we're looking at a grainier screen than we'd like, particularly then, but I've had difficulty with the lighting and have had it happen where I'm looking at a client and I can see them, but I don't know if they're crying and they're quiet, but so I can't, I'm having trouble responding to their physical cues um, that if they were sitting right in front of me, I would know very clearly, yes, this person's eyes are misty, but when there's a shadow because there's a light behind them, you know, I think there are all these considerations of, of having to find comfort in saying to a client, it helps me a lot when I can see your, your face more clearly. Can you find some, find a light and get nearer to it? And I know for me, it's been uncomfortable. Um, have you, have you had that experience too. Yeah. And I think that that's a really good consideration because on the one hand, you don't want to, because when they're in the room, you would know if they were crying, but then you want to know what their emotions are. But then it feels really jarring to say, are you crying right now? Because, you know, nobody wants to be asked that way when they're having a vulnerable moment. But also when we ask them to, hey, move into the light, <laughs> um, that might reduce their ability to be vulnerable. Right. Right. Because when they're in your office, I mean, the light is what it is and they're with you. So if they're crying with you, they're there and you know, you, you're there with them and you can notice it. Um, and in general, I, I think most clinicians offices don't tend to be like that bright fluorescent light that actually works so much better when you're on a video conference. Like right now I have one in, I have a ring light, you know, so that people can see my face clearly. Um, but I think that would be a terrible, um, terrible type of situation to try to cry <laughs> with a ring light in your face, right? So um, so I think that's a tricky question. So I I really do try to meet my clients where they're at the to the best of my ability, you know, before we get started with any content of the session. That's when I say, you know, hey, I can't really see you very clearly or, you know, the Wi-Fi is not good. Like, can you maybe move into a different area and then just kind of settle in there? And I try my best to configure it in a decent way before the content gets heavy because then you like when they start crying, then hopefully I can see them. But I've also even had some clients say, you know, I actually feel a bit more at ease and like I can be more vulnerable when we're just on the phone without video feed. Can we try that for the next session? So there's been a lot of retooling, you know, some clients are like, oh, good, I can still see you. And they feel kind of intimate with me, like they see my home office, like, oh, that's what your home office looks like, you know. Um, but I've also had some clients who say, you know what, the video thing is too jarring, like it actually makes me feel like it's too much. So can we try phone next time and see if I feel better about that? And actually, a couple of them have switched to phone sessions because it's what they prefer. And even though I think I have my own preferences, I'd like to see them. 
um, it's not really about me, right? It's about them. And so I, I have to like check my own expectations and say, you know what, if you say it's better for you and you think we're going to have a better session, let's do it that way. Um, I, I appreciate that feedback. When I had talked with Dr. Lida a couple of weeks ago about how to start um, online therapy swiftly, she talked about the importance too of setting boundaries with family members. You know, if I'm, I'm going to be doing this thing and I need an hour's worth of, of quiet and privacy, but I'm even thinking, you know, maybe what a lot of us should be doing is sending a quick email that says, here are some things that you can do as a client to hopefully improve the quality of your session and feel comfortable and empowered to do that. And I mean, one thing that's even occurred to me, I've had clients like kind of scramble to try and find Kleenex, whereas in my office, it's right next to them. So all of these things that we've just never had to think about before, but that change our connection with clients. Um, what, What other guidance do you have to to work within this framework and improve our connection with clients, um, given the unusual circumstances, like you just said, you know, it's uh, being open to transitioning to phone instead of video, if that's more comfortable with them, what are some other tools that we can use to improve that sense of connection? Well, I think one thing, as you just mentioned right now, is great is like set expectations ahead of time. And I do have a handout that I developed about telepsychology that I've had patients sign. And and some of it is really more of like an informed consent um, of what they're agreeing to um, and how their data is being kept confidential and what's the same versus different in terms of in-person sessions versus telepsychology. And APA has this great guide. Um, and perhaps we can put this resource up for your listeners, but APA has practice guidelines for telepsychology, and it has several sections that really help move you through what we're doing right now, and I think that's great. But in addition to that, I think it's also helpful, as you suggested, to have a handout that deals with some of the more um, what we call soft skills of telepsychology. You know, it's not so much the, okay, what happens to your data? And yes, I'm still taking notes. It's been being filed the exact same way under the same types of HIPAA regulations as always, but it's more about the the other elements of the telepsychology, like make sure you have a strong Wi-Fi, make sure you have Kleenex nearby, make sure you're in a place where you can sit comfortably for about an hour, you know, um, all of these things. And, and also giving them a little bit of leeway. And I know that this takes a little bit out of us, but I have given patients a bit more of a, um, kind of a padded window um, before and after our 50 minute session. So I, I, you know, when I do therapy, I work on 50 minute hour, but right now I'm just giving them the hour because it might take a little while to settle in. They may have questions for me afterwards and I'm just letting them have that time. So then when I schedule sessions, I schedule them actually on that one at a quarter hour so that I have like the 10, 15 minutes in between for myself to do what I need to do. Um, But I do find that that has been helpful just because sometimes you can't rush the telepsychology piece of it. And I don't want patients to feel like they're robbed of their time if it took them five minutes to get their Wi-Fi to a good place so that we can actually have a good conversation. That's a very good point. And also, um, I think the things that we would normally do in session to kind of signal to a client time is running down we, you know, I know for me, I usually kind of put my folio to the side and I lean in in my chair a little bit, but I can't, well, I could do it, but my clients wouldn't be able to see me doing it right now. And so I can hear kind of the importance of what you're saying, which is working with a client and kind of finding a new rhythm of how therapy is going to go because we don't have the advantage of, of being face to face. Um, so 
one of the questions I have, I want to jump back to one of the things you're talking about with loneliness and kind of this increase in cortisol and what it means to be alone, to be lonely. I know many of my clients, they live alone. They are they are stuck at home. Mm-hmm. You know that they they maybe even have grocery delivered. Some have um, conditions where they're immunosuppressed, or they are um, part of the population that's particularly at risk. What kind of psychoeducation could we be giving them around kind of loneliness, around this idea of an increase in cortisol? Is an increase in cortisol a bad thing? Like, how could we work with this to make this um, work for us as much as possible, knowing that it's not an ideal circumstance for anyone? Well, I think it's a great opportunity to provide some psychoeducation that takes the blame off of the patients. I think sometimes patients feel like, well, I'm feeling inefficacious. I'm feeling hopeless. I'm feeling like a loser. What's wrong with me? And when people have those types of feelings and thoughts, I I tend to like to default to biology as one technique to get them off of this shame cycle because it's like, hey, this is how we're all built. We all are going through it. And it's not even something you can help. It's not conscious. Um and I, I try to educate that, you know, cortisol is great. Cortisol can be really great. And actually, we need it in the morning. How do you think we get up in the morning? It's our cortisol is like at its highest um, in the hours that we right before we wake and then for the first couple of hours after we wake. And and it's like that's great for us. It's more when the cortisol is uh, amped up for the rest of the day that that it becomes more delirious. And so that's when we have to work on it. And so I, I try to tell them to 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 work on um, the most stressful and important things in the first couple of hours in the morning. And that's why in general, people tend to work out better in the morning because your body can withstand a bit more when the cortisol is high because you're kind of in that fight or flight zone. And it's good to be in fight or flight zone for brief periods of time, but it's, we don't want to be there chronically. And so I do a lot of that education, that psychoeducation around biology. And, you know, with video conferencing, it's interesting because when I'm in the room, I can give them a handout. We have a whiteboard. We can write things on the whiteboard. Harder to do when you're on a video conferencing platform. But I use Zoom for my sessions. And actually, you can share your screen. And so sometimes I'll share my screen so that we can actually look at the same handout together. Um, I can write on the handout, I can type onto it. So then it kind of feels a little bit more like what we do in session, because I'm a CBT therapist, I do use a lot of visual aids. Um, And I try to sometimes default to those more concrete steps when people are feeling so hopeless and so lonely, because that is much more amorphous in their head. And I'm trying to take it out of their head into something that's concrete and in the physical world that they can hold on to. And I think when I do that, they, they tend to have a bit better experience with it, you know, that, okay, if it's not just my own defaulty mind, you know, and it's just an element of our biology, how can we make our biology work for us? And that's when I say, you know what, cortisol is great. So in the morning, if you're, if you're like amped up on cortisol, that's not a bad thing, get things done during that time. But if you find that you're kind of stressed out throughout the day, then we need to do some things to really take off that edge, because it's not good for your body to be in cortisol for so long. And that's when we kind of talk about the relaxation uh, strategies and the connecting with people. And I let them know, you know, it's not even conscious, you know, when you connect with somebody, your cortisol and your fight or flight goes down on its own. Because again, we're with our pack. And 
we don't have to worry as much. And so you don't have to worry um, about, oh, is this working for me? It's like, don't worry, your biology is taking care of it. Your evolution is taking care of it. And it is working for you. So just make sure you do your homework assignment of touching base with somebody at least once or twice a day. And you're going to see the effects in just a little bit of time. Um, I think that's a great point about the cortisol. Another thing that I know many of us have been recommending, if it's safe, if you're in a community where you can take walks, encouraging clients to set a structure that, you know, every day between nine and 10, they take a walk and then take a walk at sunset um, to get the vitamin D, get the exposure, also pass people on the street. I know that when I've been out walking with my family um, and, and, you know, everybody moves to one side of, of the road to let the other person pass. But there's this, there's still this connection that occurs. I mean, be, even underneath hats, behind sunglasses, you still sense the other person's expression, which is, oh my goodness, isn't this weird? But hey, it's nice to see you. And and my son, who's four, he said, you said hi to that person. Do you know them? And I said, no, I don't know them in the sense I don't know where they live. I don't know their name, but I I know that they're human and I know that they're going through the same experience that we are. So, you know, I think it's important to offer them a smile. And so the next person that we passed, he was like, good morning, yep. <laughs> you know, and just the importance of trying to get back to this really fundamental part of our humanity, which is the the social fabric that binds us together. Um, I I I want to share with you. You know, I think I I appreciate what you said about struggling with interventions. You know, because we we don't have the same. Um, resources at the ready that we normally would. I know many people are relying on um, different worksheets and things like that. And of course, many programs allow us to send those real time or share a screen like you said, Dr. Judy. One thing I've actually done, and hopefully you're willing to share the resource, I've actually used your values exercise a couple of times in the last couple of weeks to help people really connect with their values of like, you know, what's most important to you? And then how could you make decisions based on that right now? So if one of your primary values is community building, what what could that look like when you feel isolated? How could you still be part of the community? You know, I, and, uh, you know, someone said, well, I could, I could write thank you notes to the, to the doctors. It's like, there you go. You know, like, let's use those values to guide decision making. So if it's all right with you, I would love to post that as a resource um, on the landing page for the course, uh, for people to be able to access and download because I, I think we have to get a little bit creative in moving sessions along kind of differently that while it's important to be there in grief, it's also important to, to be there in the, um, I, the word I'm thinking of is like to be there in the, the birth of the Phoenix that's coming out of this, like how do we mobilize growth and security in such an unstable time? Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad that the value exercise has been helpful for your clients. And it's been immensely helpful for mine. I think sometimes when we feel a little lost or disorganized and not sure if we can derive meaning from our everyday activities, it's good to check in with our values and think more intentionally about what we're committing our time to. And again, you know, I feel like we're probably closing this session about boundaries again, but it is important because it's so easy to just commit to everything right now because, you know, you're home and you're like, oh, well, you know, in between my sessions, I guess I'll put in a load of laundry and I'll also get that done. Um, There's just a million things that you can say yes to right now. And I think we're also desperate for that social connection. So when people ask us for certain things, we're like, yeah, of course, like we're here, you know, sure. Um, But then you end up committing to a bunch of things, saying yes to a bunch of things, and it overwhelms you. And so I I think what, what the values exercise does is really distills down exactly what's the most important thing 
for you to focus on. And then from there, once you know your top values, writing those goals down, then those goals feel very intentional. And then even if you're a little exhausted at the end of the day, you're like, wait, but I remember why I did that thing. You know, why did I spend time on that? Because I decided it was important, right? As opposed to you just having to take in everything and, and do everything and just feels like mountains and mountains of work and responsibility. And so I think that that is something helpful when people are feeling very hopeless and when people are feeling like, I don't know where to start and one day is bleeding into the next and I don't even know what day it is. Like, you know, this is another good way to structure people's time. Um, yeah, I think I think many people are wrestling with a lack of productivity. You know, a part of being human is needing to feel like we're moving forward. And I know I've even encouraged my clients that don't don't right now have that much they can do. You know, that they're they're very isolated. Some clients that are in a studio, they're all by themselves. And, you know, then then let's do a to-do list about taking a shower. Let's do a to-do list about cleaning out your sock drawer and and making sure to go back to that list and checking it off because we, as you said, I mean, we said many times, kind of the importance right now of intentionality is one of the, the ways to ground ourselves through this. Um, so Dr. Judy, during this, we've talked about so many things. Um, you know, we talked about the kind of evolutionary base of the anxiety that we're feeling, the, um, the importance of having structure, of having boundaries, how we as clinicians can work with clients right now in a way that is not only supportive of ourselves and our own mental health, but help them both be where they are and feel empowered to move forward. Um, we could certainly keep talking on this for quite a while, but I, I want to um, have you close out by talking about some resources that you found really helpful during this time. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, I think what's been helpful for me is really being able to check in with for us, you know, as as a psychologist, I think just the APA listserv and the APA website, as far as my professional work goes, it's been really great to kind of see all the resources that have been put together for us clinicians. I mean, they have just really, I feel like, met the need as quickly as they can. Um, there are forms um, that you can use, templates for telepsychology services. Um, there are, you know, uh, forms for yeah exactly how you might want to conduct these sessions if you've never done telepsychology before. Um, so I think it's been good because you know that that source is being developed by other professionals who are doing this work and they're always um, retooling it. And so I've found that to be very helpful. So if you're not signed up with an APA listserv or haven't been frequently visiting this website, I, I would say that you should because they really do have so many timely, helpful resources there. Um, I think another resource for me has been, you know, really just practicing as much mindfulness as I can, um, knowing that it will be something that benefits my clients because I can teach them more about these practices. Um, but also it's good for me. It's good for my own self-care. And one of the... Um, one of my favorite uh, books that's very easy to digest that I share with my clients all the time is Russ Harris's uh, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy book called The Happiness Trap. And that book is very digestible because the chapters are short and they have all these actionable tips that you can practice. So I like reading that book because it feels like a light reading when you're a clinician, but as a patient, I think it's also very doable and can be done on their own even without your help, but then you can discuss it in session. So I think that's also been very helpful for me. And other than that, I think so much of the resources really comes from still getting together with your immediate clinical community. Um, I've been definitely more intentional about connecting with other clinicians who are in my area, even though we can't see each other. Um, 
just checking in, um, asking them how they're doing and, 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 you know, running questions by them. You know, if I have a question about how to do something in a session or, Hey, have you noticed this about, you know, your clients? I've noticed that there's been a little anger, um, when you can't see them in person. Have you noticed the same thing? Um, that that's been really helpful. So I would encourage everybody to reach out to their immediate clinical network and, and, you know, consult with them. That's what they're there for. And I think it's really good practice to consult with your colleagues. And so if any time we should be consulting, it's now, you know, so definitely reach out and, and ask those questions. And finally, if you have um, in, uh, malpractice insurance, um, they have a ton of resources too. So I'm, I do my malpractice insurance through APA, but you know, they have a call line that you can talk to. Um, they have a number of printed resources and new articles that they've written about the situation. Um, and I think that's really good too. You know, again, going to these good sources of information so that, you know, at this time, how you should transform your practice to meet the needs. Wonderful. Thank you for those pieces of guidance. And we'll put those links on the uh, course landing page so that folks can easily access those. And Dr. Judy, for people who want to learn more about your work, I mean, I know you just released your own podcast, um, kind of tell us how people can get in touch with you and kind of where where you are. Absolutely. So um, you can learn more about me at my website, drjudyho.com. That's D-R-J-U-D-Y-H-O. And uh, my social handle is the same. So it's Dr. Judy Ho. And um, I post evidence-based guidance and tips on it every day. I just launched my new podcast. It's called Supercharged Life. And it's really built upon my passion as a CBT therapist of wanting to provide evidence-based tips for people to improve their lives. So um, I think one of the most important things right now is as I'm looking at the information that's out there, there is such a wide propensity for misinformation. And so I think that's why I really love the work that you're doing, Elizabeth, because you're providing clinicians with like timely expert evidence-based information. And I just encourage people to continue to listen to your podcast for everything that they need and to get great guidance, because I think it's easy to get steered the wrong way. And right now it's, there's a lot going on. So when you have that information influx, sometimes you turn to the wrong places for resources. And I just think it's important that we all still remember what you know our core values are and where our good sources of information are and then take that and then move it into a tip. And then you got to relax and move on because you can't control everything, even if we try and we can only do what we can do. Well, thank you, Dr. Judy. I know this has been illuminating for me and I'm sure for our listeners, you've given us so many tips that we can easily use in our practices and with ourselves and with our clients. So thank you for spending this time with us today. We really appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.